look, a lot of the Fast and Furious movies are not great by like any traditional metric of like, is this a good or a bad movie? But what they are is they're fun with crowds. These are great crowd movies. It's not for nothing that this became like a vision of this, of like theatrical exhibition success, because these are movies that are best experienced with other people. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. And in this week's episode, I am joined by our colleagues and co-hosts, Romeo Duchenne from the Box Office Company and Russ Fisher from the Box Office Studios. As together, we take a look back at the box office history of the Fast and the Furious franchise. I personally had not seen a single one of these movies until really last week when we decided to do this episode. That's a lie. I had seen the first one back in 2001, but I went back, I rewatched all of them every single one of them to bring you this episode. But before we get into that feature segment, going over that box office and cultural history of The Fast and the Furious, Romeo Duchenne is going to be bringing in the latest box office forecasting analysis for the global opening weekend of Fast X, the latest entry in this Fast and Furious series. Romeo will be bringing in data points from across the digital universe that are B2C websites here at the Box Office Company service. That is coming up right after the break. And yes, that means before we get started, a quick word from our sponsors over at Jackrow who are bringing you this week's episode. So let's get right into it. Let's hear from our sponsors before we dive into the Fast X opening weekend forecast with Romeo Duchenne. This episode of the Box Office Podcast is brought to you by Jackrow, whose full-service box office management system has users singing their praises. Julie and Jeff Eisentrout, owner-operators of Eisentrout Theaters, say, Over the years, Jackrow has expertly responded to the growing digital needs of the industry and developed a product that is both logical and operator-friendly. Their support has always been timely, helpful, and reliable. Most important, and why we've never looked elsewhere— other relationships we've developed. Our friends at Jackrow are patient and helpful and always treat us like we're part of the family. When it all gets down to it, we do business with people, and Jackrow has always had the best in that department. To find out more, visit www.jacro.com. Romeo, what's this looking like? Because it's been a tale of declining domestic revenues for this franchise. We'll go over the entire history of that in just a moment. But Fast X coming into a marketplace that has somewhat recovered from the pandemic, especially on a global sense. What are you looking at here domestically? We see this one ranging from 65 to $75 million opening weekend that could lead to a domestic box office between 140 to 180, 85. That could lead to a global box office around 600, 700. And that will put that movie into the, the range of the two previous ones. Well, a little bit below. Yeah, a little bit below. So what I can see from uh, the data points I have from my side, as you know, we, we do own a lot of different B2C movie websites all around the world. So we do have a bunch of data to, to look at. One that I'm looking a lot is the organic data. It's the way people are searching for a movie 
without the help of any marketing. It looks like people are still interested into the movie a little bit less. It looks like there might be a little bit of fatigue behind that. We don't really see that in terms of trailer viewership. It's, it's kind of like in the same range. I don't know if you heard, but they had their worldwide premiere in Rome this weekend. Mm, this past right, weekend. yeah. Apparently, Vin Diesel told us the Fast X is going to have a second part, but also a third part. Yeah, okay. And he so, did not told us that at CinemaCon. Right. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. That was the, the most recent thing from Diesel is that there are two more movies, not one more movie. So there's an entire trilogy waiting for moviegoers who might or might not have seen all 10 prior entries in this franchise. There's also a children's television show on Netflix. There's a couple of short films that tie up some loose ends. We're not going to be going over this ephemera around the franchise. We're just going to talk about the theatrically released feature films themselves. So we'll be going into all of those details right after the break before we get into the Fast and the Furious franchise box office history and cultural history. Here's a word from our sponsor, Screen Vision. Screen Vision Media is a national leader in delivering comprehensive advertising and content representation for top-tier cinema exhibitors, including three of the top five nationwide. Screen Vision Cinema Advertising Network provides national coverage spanning 94% of DMAs and comprising over 2,000 theaters and over 13,500 screens. National advertisers are drawn to the strengths of Screen Vision's network. There is simply no substitute to reach the young, diverse, and highly engaged audience, coupled with precise measurement and big screen impact that cinema consistently delivers. To find out more, visit ScreenVision.com. And thank you to our sponsor, Screen Vision and Jackrow for supporting the Box Office Podcast. We're back here with Romeo Duchenne and Russ Fisher going over every single theatrically released title of the Fast and the Furious franchise. Ten movies, all in all, leading up to the release of Fast X this weekend. Guys, let's take this from where everything started back in 2001. The summer of 2001, June 22nd to be exact. The Fast and the Furious hit screens. Where were you guys in life? Do you remember watching this? It was a time in my life where I didn't see a lot of new movies like opening weekend unless it was something I was dying to see because I just didn't have a lot of time. I was not even vaguely interested in this movie. So this wasn't even on my radar. You know, as we discussed before, Gone in 60 Seconds had come out a while before. I'd been vaguely interested in that because of Nick Cage, but then I saw it and was like, no, okay, I'm good. I was also not like a street racing guy. I'm not a big car guy, you know? So there's a bunch of stuff about this movie where I was just like, nah, it's not, it's not for me. I don't need this. You know, it's the same summer that Grand Theft Auto 3 came out for the PlayStation 2. That's when I was off. That's what I spent a lot of time doing was playing GTA 3. That was, you know, that was my car thing for that summer and probably like two years that followed. But it's good you mentioned GTA 3 because that's hugely influential, I think, for this series of movies as the yeah. Grand Theft Auto video game series grows. You also mentioned the yeah. background of having gone in 60 seconds, which is another big studio car racing heist movie. That came out the prior year in 2000, mm. huge marketing campaign. 
It wasn't a massive box office hit. It did well enough. I remember going to see that. You mentioned Nick Cage. It was always interesting to see him lead a studio picture. Angelina Jolie was also in it. I must have been 15 years old. You put Angelina Jolie on a poster and a trailer. (laughs) 15-year-old boys are going to go see it. Like you, I went to go see Gone in 60 Seconds. I was not really, you know, fulfilled by what I saw. And when trailers of this movie came out, I was like, nah, man, I already saw that movie last year. I'm not going to see this Fast and Furious thing. This movie came out. It wasn't really on any of our radars. When did you actually see it? Because I remember going to Mexico that summer, hanging out with my cousin that is really into car culture and him just gushing about this movie, saying I absolutely had to go see it. After that summer, I remember going back and waiting for Blockbuster to put this out on rental. And I remember going when the movie was released the first day, the night it was put out on shelves in Blockbuster and renting it. And I actually really liked it. So I had to wait to see it on home video. When did you guys eventually see the first edition of this franchise? I think I've watched it, uh, I'm not sure, but I do think I watched it in a, in a movie theater, Nice Pate Langostier in the south of France, because my father, my parents were uh, a lot into bringing us to the movie theater. So I'm 75, 85% sure I watched it in the movie theater. I watched it on DVD. I think by the time Too Fast, Too Furious came out, I had transitioned into writing and I was doing some movie reviews for a local paper in Atlanta. As I recall, I had to see to the second movie for work and I rented or bought the first or borrowed, somehow got the first movie on DVD just so that I had any idea what was going on in the second. But let's go into that because DVDs are not only an integral <laughs> part of the plot in the Fast and the Furious universe, a universe that ends up in the literal universe and Fast 9, they're in outer space. But back in 2001, this franchise starts in very humble beginnings a bunch of guys and girls in modified imported cars, some American muscle cars, trying to stick up semi-trucks full of DVD players. Because if you're going to get rich in 2001, you're going to get rich by stealing DVD players. We know that's what you're going to risk your freedom for. That's how this franchise starts. I love it. But DVD was a huge part. We mentioned just if you miss this in theaters, DVD was a massive component of bringing new life to movies. And that happened with Universal, with this franchise, that even as we'll see in the later sequels, two and three, they didn't have to perform theatrically. They knew they had that DVD market cornered. We'll go into that shortly, but let's go into this movie itself. This is a pre-9-11 movie. It feels like it's part of a generation of action movies that didn't have to moralize, didn't have to bring in these like global stakes or geopolitics, really. It, it seems like an action movie of a simpler era. Of course, this evolves with the sequels. But back in 2001, it's just a bunch of hot people trying to get some DVD players and drive their nice cars. Yeah, I think it was only seen as a, as a, as a guilty pleasure for the eyes at the time, you know? Yeah, I mean, and that's, I think that's why the movie works. It's, it's a very pure, simple thing. And, you know, I think that, everywhere that this series has gone. And honestly, this is one of the most interesting movie series. This is a way more interesting movie series to talk about and look at its development, like parallel to the changes in the business, changes culturally, than say Marvel or whatever, because it's fewer movies. It happens on a more compacted timeline. And 
you know, this beginning really does set it up for a sort of success, even though this movie was not like a huge cultural thing. I think that DVD aspect did turn it into something that virtually everyone in a certain demographic saw, you know, whether they saw it theatrically or they saw it, you know, at a friend's house on DVD or in their dorm on DVD or whatever, like it kind of became that movie that people just threw on. And that creates a foundation that allows them to build on something later on. And like you said, Russ, I also do think uh, they changed the, the modern culture. I mean, prior to the Fast and Furious franchise, brand car manufacturers were only doing like four different colors. And now they are doing way more bold colors. So I do think they changed the modern uh, culture so much. And it's part of a bigger culture at large. This movie is actually adapted from a Vibe magazine article about street racing culture in New York City's Washington Heights neighborhood. Now, there's virtually none of that source article left in the Fast and the Furious movies at all. But it does retain some aspects that made the article, I think, compelling for a studio to buy. The multicultural aspect of these street racing cultures, that's still there. This is a franchise that's always been quietly multicultural. It doesn't pat itself on the back in telling everybody, look how diverse we are. It's just naturally diverse. It's part of what the movie is. It's taken from, I think, that source material. And the other part of it is it doesn't bring in these luxury cars. They're cars that you could buy on the secondary market, right? They're, they're imported cars from Japan or from Korea. They're American muscle cars that have been modified. There's a part of car culture that makes it accessible if you're into that. And if you're not into that, hey, you can buy a Volkswagen Jetta. That's in the movie. You can buy a Honda Civic. That's in the movie as well. There's something very attainable in the Fast and the Furious movies. And I think that's what makes them relatable. You look at the stars as well. Vin Diesel is coming off of Pitch Black, a movie that works decently well. Pitch Black was kind of a surprise success. Nobody really thought that movie was going to be anything. It's kind of a shoestring operation. So the success of Pitch Black was, a, you know, a big bonus for Vin Diesel and for this movie. And you look at uh, his female co-star here, Michelle Rodriguez. She's coming out of a breakthrough role in Karen Kusama's Girl Fight, which was a, just a Sundance hit. Michelle Rodriguez was someone that I think if you were looking at what was coming out of Sundance, looking at younger talent that people were talking about, Michelle Rodriguez was one of the names that you heard all of the time, and for good reason. And that's rounded off with Paul Walker, who had been in a couple of teen heartthrob movies. Uh, he played uh, a role in Varsity Blues, the MTV Generation football movie. So you have a young, very promising cast, no established stars, multicultural, as we're mentioning. And the movie just, I think, works really effectively here. It ends up being a PG-13 version of what would have been an R-rated second part of a double bill playing at a drive-in in the 1970s. This is a genre movie that in other generations, I think would have been a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more violent, a little bit more sexual, and a whole lot better. But that's not where we are in 2001. In 2001, you don't have that grindhouse culture. You have to make something PG-13. And within that scope, I think the movie's actually pretty damn good. Yeah, it works. You know, it's fun. It's like we said before, it's very straightforward. The cast works well together. It's, you know, among the more legit feeling movies when it comes to like the racing and all of that sort of thing. I don't I don't mind 
you know, I don't have any problem with going more over the top, going more absurd, relying more on on digital effects, all that sort of thing. That's fine. But there's a stunt aspect, like a real feeling stunt aspect in The Fast and the Furious that that helps it. Nobody really ever points this movie out as like a, you know, a stunt masterpiece movie and I don't think it is, but it's good and it's done well and it and it hits the notes it needs to hit. I think that climactic sequence in the first film when you have one of the characters dangling off a semi-truck and then a bunch of Honda Civics trying to get him off of that semi-truck, that's a practically shot scene. That scene's wonderful. I don't think the franchise ever gets to be as exciting as the climax in the first film. They can just amp up the budget, amp up the stars, but there's a rawness, a grittiness in that final climactic scene where it looks like the guy that's hanging off this semi-truck, his arm is going to fall off, it looks like almost. And it's exciting. It gave me a feeling that I think was lost for the rest of the franchise because the rest of the franchise had to evolve. And it evolved alongside big studio temples and their own evolution in the post 9-11 era and then later on in the post Marvel Cinematic Universe era. But before we get to those evolutions, let's go to the sequel here. Released in 2003, in June 5th, 2003, Too Fast, Too Furious. The first movie, as we mentioned, was a decent box office hit. It was the number 12 film of the year in 2001. It made a good amount of money, 144 million domestically. This is back before the overseas box office is hugely profitable. We've been mentioning how movies really look at that second window of the home entertainment DVD market to break through and become profitable behemoths for Universal. That happened here, but by the time we get to the sequel, guys, only two years later, it looks like these young stars, they're getting a little more expensive, right? The first movie works. Vin Diesel goes out to make a couple big budget movies. Michelle Rodriguez looks at some options. Michelle Rodriguez is in a big action franchise called SWAT that it looks like is going to be the next big action franchise from a studio. But those are the type of movies that these actors, after the success of the first one, are going to. Because the first Fast and the Furious is a good movie. It performs well. It does great sales on DVD. But it's not an established franchise. It's not looked at either by Vin Diesel or Michelle Rodriguez as something they should hook their careers to. They go do other films. The only principle that comes back for the sequel here is Paul Walker. John Singleton, a fantastic director, comes in to direct the second one. You can see it in the production values. They're higher. There's more of an effort to make this a theatrical event. It ends up playing, in my opinion, like an 80s buddy cop comedy with uh, Tyrese Gibson coming in, stepping in for, I guess, the role that was originally destined for Vin Diesel. I would have bought that this was a script originally titled Miami Vice. I would have bought that. It seems like a very patched on sequel. Not too many of the themes from the original are here beyond the car racing culture and the multi-ethnic and multicultural part of the franchise. I mean, Vin Diesel is, you know, he's trying to do more Riddick movies. He's still trying to, you know, he and David Tui are both trying to push Pitch Black forward. And they eventually do, you know, more Riddick films. You know, he's got the triple X thing starting up. So Vin Diesel's like, I don't need to do this thing. You know, I'm going to go do other stuff. This movie is fine. Great title. Too Fast, Too Furious. Chef's kiss. Love it. Uh, Sets up the whole approach for the rest of the series. But beyond that, yeah, I mean, I think John Singleton does a fine job with it, but this is kind of John Singleton going into this kind of like work for hire 
thing, which doesn't necessarily suit him as well. When you look into the into the number, the the second one had even worse critics than the previous one. They had fifty percent audience score on Rotten Tomatoes when the previous one had like seventy four percent. And the second one, let's not forget, globally they did more box office than the previous one, but domestically they did less than the previous one. So we were kind of like in the middle of like, okay, are we going to continue or what? Because uh, box office was still not a hit. And I think there was every reason to think like, okay, this is going to be the end. Even when Tokyo Drift goes forward, it's like, is this going to be a DT? Is this going to be a direct-to-video release? Is this actually going to go theatrical? You know, what's happening? But then as it turns out, they hired exactly the right person to turn this into something legit. Yeah, I think that's a good transition to the third uh, title in this series. Because as you know, Pross, there was a real risk after this movie comes out. And what Romeo said, the not only the critical reaction, but the public reaction doesn't really receive the film as, pos- as positively as I think anyone had hoped at Universal. I think there's a lot of mistakes in the second one that forces the third movie to come out without any of the stars, makes it like a weird spinoff that I think still to this day, a lot of people wonder, hey, did this even hit theaters? But they did do some things right in the second one that I do think set up future entries. They bring in Ludacris to play a supporting role in the movie. And his music ends up being a big part of the sequel. And music ends up being a big part of the future films. And not only music, but fairly diverse music that ends up, uh, I think, being a, a big part of the culture around these global productions. It's not there yet, right? And I think you mentioned that, Romeo, that transition from this being a franchise made for US audiences begins with the third title, The Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift, released in June 16th of 2006. No principles from the original are back for this one. You've got a Lucas Black coming in. It's a guy that looks a whole lot like Paul Walker. When I watched this movie, I was not aware of that. I thought that was Paul Walker himself and that the character now spoke with a Southern accent. So you're a little bit disoriented when you go into it. What I like about this is uh, you bring in the point here, Russ, that the third entry in this franchise brings in a young filmmaker with a breakthrough movie. That's Justin Lin, who had just come off a breakthrough hit in Better Luck Tomorrow, a nice like teenage crime movie with an Asian-American cast, also a Sundance movie, a big breakout hit. MTV actually acquired the movie out of Sundance. I believe it was the first acquisition of a festival for MTV films. It catches young audiences. And there's an energy in Better Luck Tomorrow that I think Justin Lin brings to Tokyo Drift, a movie that wasn't appreciated at the time. I think as we look back on it, it's one of my favorite out of these I'm so series. Great. I really, really respond to it. I think, and I can tell you why, It's a standalone movie and it's a high school movie. It doesn't have to be international espionage. It doesn't have to be about heists or anything big. It's Karate Kid Part 2, but with street racing in it. And I really responded to that aspect of the movie. I thought it was great. I think Tokyo Drift is unquestionably an entertaining movie. I didn't see it at the time. I had a friend in Atlanta who was a big fan of it. And I only saw it on DVD thanks to her. She was like, no, really, shut up and sit down and watch this movie. And I think this is also the place where Fast and the Furious becomes, look, a lot of the Fast and Furious movies are not great by like any traditional metric of like, is this a good or a bad movie? But what they are is they're fun with crowds. These are great crowd movies. 
it's not for nothing that this became like a vision of this like theatrical exhibition success because these are movies that are best experienced with other people. I think Tokyo Drift really sets that up. And that's the thing that continues all through the rest of this series where it's like, you know, you watch some of these on your own and it's like, I don't know, I've had a good time with almost all of the movies that I've seen theatrically and the ones that I really don't like, you know, uh, specifically Hobbs and Shaw and F9, I saw at home alone and I kind of wonder if I would have enjoyed those more if I had seen them theatrically because these just these movies are built to have kind of a communal response. And that really it's something that Justin Lin understands. And it's something that I think starts in the first film, but it really gets cemented in Tokyo Drift. It feels like it takes place in Japan. It doesn't feel like a tourism movie exactly. You know, like they're, oh, we went here for three weeks and we shot on the highways and, uh, you know, nothing else. It's like this, this feels like it is trying to really set the movie in Japan. And, you know, it's still uh, kind of cartoonish. It's still an exaggerated thing, but it, it feels more unified it feels more like an actual thing that it's trying to depict and that gives it a little bit of like a little something extra for me it felt like an mtv teen movie of its time uh and you just have to look at the way that justin lynn directs it there's a lot of establishing shots um a lot of let's just say what it is i think the justin lynn school of directing is all your establishing shots start with someone's butt and then just moves to a car and then by that you'll just figure out where you are but car location, and that's how all of Lynn's movies work in this franchise. That soundtrack that we mentioned was part of the second movie with Ludacris being in it. You still have a very diverse, compelling soundtrack coming into the third movie, and it just looks fun. It looks like an MTV Cribs episode, but with that, like, what was that MTV Car Show episode? Pimp My Ride, I think it was called. And then you put racing in it, and there's, like, cool high school parties with rich people and, like, hot people. And it works fantastically well as an anomaly, total standalone anomaly in the franchise. And for all intents and purposes, that could have been it, right? The principles are gone. You have a weird spinoff. Except... The greatest the thing the thing about this movie that's wild is that the aspect of this film that ended up kind of creating a continuity for the entire rest of the series wasn't even planned, didn't even happen during production, didn't happen until later, almost didn't happen at all, which is in a pre-Marvel Cinematic Universe moment, Vin Diesel making sort of a surprise cameo reappearance at the end of this film. But the thing is like him showing up at the end of this after he's been gone since the first movie did give this movie a little bit of a sense of legitimacy to people who I think would have written it off otherwise and to whatever fan base existed at the time. And it also suggested like, Oh, maybe there's, maybe there's something else here. You sit through it by the end. You're like, Hey, that's actually exciting. That was fun. And then you see Vin Diesel show up and you get excited. You're right. It absolutely helps launch everything else that follows. My question for you guys is, do you think there's anything after this movie, if that Vin Diesel cameo isn't at the end of Tokyo Drift? No, without that Vin Diesel cameo, I think the series is done here. Well, when we look at the level of imagination of Hollywood, I can't say no and I can't say yes, you know. <laughs> we can be surprised. <laughs> yeah, if we know one thing from this franchise is that narrative and narrative structure and continuity isn't a big priority for the Fast and the Furious franchise. 
Well, no, it's not. But in part, the lack of narrative structure and continuity being a low priority for Hollywood now is driven by the Fast and Furious franchise. You know, this is a series that does shape where Hollywood goes over the next 20 years. And I don't know, none of, like you said, none of the principles are in this movie. The You know, there's two people who make Fast and Furious works, Vin Diesel and Paul Walker. Neither of them are in this movie when it is in production. Vin Diesel's added later, but if that doesn't happen, I don't know, I think it's dead here. I think it stops. There's no suggestion that this goes forward. You know, there's nothing in the movie to say like, well, okay, there's another chapter. Like maybe, you know, maybe we see what Lucas Black's character does next, which of course we eventually do. But it even takes years before that happens in the Fast and Furious franchise. I don't know. I think Vin Diesel doesn't do that cameo. None of the subsequent movies happen. The other big thing that happens here is Romeo said a, a second ago, the market share for this movie ends up shifting towards the overseas box office. 61% of the movie's 158 million global total comes from outside of North America. That's the, for the first time in this franchise that happens. And we're getting to a cusp here where DVD sales are going to peak in the coming years. Between 2006 and 2009, DVD sales are gonna do great, 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 great. And right around 2010, 2011, they're just gonna fall off a cliff because what happens? Streaming comes in, rental stores start disappearing, and it's a completely different business model for home entertainment. Fortunately, digital cinema comes in, and overseas box office and overseas distribution become that additional element for movies to find life outside of the domestic market. And this franchise is able to do that starting with the next entry in this series, released on April 3rd, 2009, Fast and Furious. Guys, do you remember seeing this? Because I remember being right out of college, hearing that this movie came out, and surprised that people were interested in seeing the entire cast from the original coming back together. This was a time when, you know, I was writing about and reviewing movies full time. And, you know, what I would do a lot of times is I would, you know, I'd text or reach out to friends, however, and be like, hey, this press screening is coming up. If anybody wants to go, let me know, you know, come see it with me. And this was one of those movies where I got a surprising reception where people were like, yes, I want to go see this immediately, you know? And I was kind of like, oh, there's more interest in this than I, that was my, you know, late to the game cue that like, oh, this is maybe more of a thing than I was assuming it was going to be. I was thinking like, oh, this is kind of a limping back to the starting line deal rather than you know, this is the real beginning of an industry shifting billion dollar, you know, enterprise. This is a movie that I think comes out and is able to do a couple of things really, really well at the perfect time. They take the franchise outside of the United States. They look at that box office share that the third one had once you set the movie in Tokyo, once you go to an international locale, once it's not a domestic movie, you put it somewhere exotic, somewhere exciting, it can be interesting. Stay with the multi-ethnic casting. Stay with the multicultural part of it. Don't make a big deal out of it. Just make it a regular part of the movie. Keep on with the drag racing. Keep on with the modified cars. That's still working. And then try to bring in additional elements into it. Now, the big twist here is that bringing in the original cast back 
I think turns this movie into a must watch. I think Russ, you said it perfectly. A lot of people that you didn't expect to be interested in this movie, all of a sudden probably saw the first Fast and the Furious at their dorm room or on DVD a number of times. Maybe they saw the second and the third one on basic cable. There's a fandom here from that second window that drives theatrical for the fourth one. And the end result, I think, feels like the first true sequel to The Fast and the Furious. It feels like a return to the roots. It's a heist movie again. And I think it's exciting. I think the practical stunts work. The breakout performance here is a very young Gal Gadot, who I don't think anyone had heard of before this title. And it's a, it's a total breakthrough role. You see her performance here. I think it really puts her on the bat map before she becomes Wonder Woman. It's, I think, for me, the best part of the movie. I think she, she really adds an element that I think benefits the film itself. This is also the first film in the franchise to go with an April release, kind of shifting this series to kicking off the summer at the box office. Romeo, what were the numbers on this one? Because this is where we see this movie really become important for Universal. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's very simple, uh, Daniel. Uh, with that one, they double the international box office compared to the previous one. So Tokyo Drift did uh, 100 shy inter- uh, million dollar international box office. And this one did 205 million international box office. With a domestic opening weekend of 71, they end around uh, $155 million domestic box office. And this is the first time they crossed the $300 million global box office mark to end around $360 million uh, worldwide. So this one marked a gap in the franchise. Definitely a big gap. It ends up being the number seven film at the domestic box office, the number seven film at the global box office. Russ, you're at this point writing professionally. What was the critical reception to this title and did it deliver for audiences? I remember the critical reception being pretty good, you know, but this is also the beginning of a run of these movies where it doesn't matter what the critical reception is, you know, (laughs) because People like them. Audiences like them. I think this is where they got a lot of things. This is where the the real formula that kicks in for another five movies is built. When we were talking about the planning for this episode, you know, we both agreed on the idea of this series evolution into a sort of telenovela storytelling with the ensemble cast, with like this shifting set of romantic partnerships, characters who die and then they come back. You know, we see and that Misha, with Michelle Rodriguez's if, if character. Come, if people come back from the dead and then have amnesia, you're in soap opera tel- territory. Like, you know, there's a baby, there's like, you know, a, not a necessarily an illegitimate, but like a secret baby. There, All of these things take place in this movie. I mean, that's all soap opera stuff. It feels like the first sequel. It feels like the second and third installments are kind of weird standalones that tonally don't really retain a lot of the identity, but bring in elements that are recognizable. This is recognizable. This feels like the Fast and the Furious part two. Yes. Well, and it because it does, you know, having that original cast helps. But then I think when, if you ask someone to describe the feeling of, or even the appeal of the Fast and the Furious movies overall, the stuff that they would tell you, which is like the character set, the, you know, family thing, the over-the-top action, the soap opera aspect, the guest stars, all of that stuff begins in this movie. All of that stuff is a template that is drawn by this movie. And it's not that this movie does it best, but this is what sets up everything that happens for many years to come. 
And appropriately, it's a success. This is where they're like, oh, it took us four movies, but we cracked it. And honestly, it's kind of amazing that they got the chance because, you know, this is an original IP that they licensed the name from a Roger Corman movie, but it's not a remake. You know, this was like we talked about with the first movie. It's basically an original story. It's got a cast that people don't really know. Now they know this cast because of these movies. And it's like, honestly, there's not a lot of examples of this. This is like Star Wars for the 2000s, you know, in the sense of it's a an original thing with a cast that people don't know becoming like the dominant blockbuster series. It's wild. And, you know, you don't see people getting four movies to get it right. Certainly not now and not even then, but you see it here and they do get it right and it works. And, you know, now like we're really off to the races. I think it's three factors that get us here in a way that that didn't work for any of the other franchises launched in the aughts that didn't produce any sequels. I think what gets us there is the DVD market, the fact that these movies get an audience, not only through home video, also through cable, through basic cable. These movies like live in basic cable and perform very well within that ecosystem. The second thing that I think comes in and helps it is Justin Lin. Justin Lin is a creative force coming in for the third title, bringing a stamp, an aesthetic into what he wants to do and that works. It's young, it's fresh, it's exciting, and it never loses that energy. And lastly, and this might seem critical, but I think it's a conditional factor here. In 2001, it looked like Vin Diesel's career was going to take off, Michelle Rodriguez's career was going to take off, Paul Walker's career was going to take off, Jordana Brewster's career was going to take off. None of them took off. None of them. They tried to. They spent most of those odds, most of that decade, trying to get to that next level. None of them got there. The one title that always kept on coming back for all of them was this movie from 2001. So it makes perfect sense in 2009 for them to come back and double down on this. I don't know Vin Diesel. I get the sense that there's kind of a weird, almost resentful love-hate relationship between him and these movies because I think he wanted to be known for other movies and he's known for these. And so he has like a a sort of stranglehold on these movies now, especially following the death of Paul Walker, where – He's the dominant voice in the room. Like if Vin Diesel doesn't want a thing to to happen with these movies now, I don't think it's going to happen. See Justin Lin's abrupt exit from Fast X after the movie's already started production. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. But for better or worse, yeah, their careers are made with the fourth movie, with The Fast and the Furious. Eventually, it turns into a giant behemoth. And that giant behemoth really takes off with the release of Fast Five. And it's going to be the last factor that turns this franchise into what it is today for Universal. And what is it for Universal today? It is their most valuable IP outside of animation, full stop. They don't have superheroes. They have dinosaurs. But this is a studio that had to compete in the 2010s with street racing and establishing shots with butts in them against the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And by and large, they went toe-to-toe with all those movies and came out on the other side, not worse for wear. That starts in 2011 with Fast Five. That gets released in April 29, 2011. By this point, we have a Marvel Cinematic Universe that's taking shape. What a franchise means to a studio is very different. We're in the IP era of Hollywood. We're no longer in the star era of Hollywood. And if there's a homegrown IP that was built from scratch that doesn't have 
anything that you recognize behind it, it's going to be this one. And they hit it out of the park with Fast Five, opening to $86 million, a franchise high at the time. And Romeo, the domestic and overseas numbers here are fantastic, nearly doubling its global box office take. What was the split here? Because we also see the overseas audience really ramp up. Yeah, the split is, uh, is uh, astonishing. 66% market share uh, overseas. So remember uh, the answer I gave you just uh, two minutes ago regarding Fast and Furious 4, that they doubled the international box office compared to Tokyo Drift. Well, that's already the case again for Fast 5. They went from 205 international box office for Fast and Furious 4 to $416 million box office for Fast 5, grossing more than $626 million globally. And I do think Fast Five is kind of like the, um, the benchmark for all the next Fast and Furious franchise, and especially Fast and Furious 10. I mean, if we do below Fast and Furious 5, which is $626 million global box office, it will not be a good, uh, a good news for Universal Pictures. I think that's a really good way of setting the financial expectations here. Let's not look at those billion-dollar earners that happened right before the pandemic. Let's look at the market where it is. I think Fast Five, $626 million is a, is a great way to contextualize what we're looking at from this franchise now. Russ, we see, I think, a transition also narratively, a little bit aesthetically. These movies now have a lot more budget than they used to. It was a bet to bring everyone back together to Fast and Furious, right? The fourth one. We weren't sure that was going to work. It worked. Universal puts a lot of muscle behind into this and a lot of confidence on Justin Lin, who keeps on delivering. Yeah, I mean, Lin nails it. He spends that money well. They get, you know, the action set pieces are bigger. They're more absurd. To me, they, you know, they work on a different level. It's more about, like, it's less like a hard-hitting action thing and more like, what kind of fun did they have putting this together, you know? At the point where they're like dragging a giant vault through the streets of a city, you know, it's like, okay, we're we're in a different realm now, but it's fun. The character interaction is working, you know, and it's, you know, these movies are not trying to be, they're not trying to be smart. They're not trying to be, clever in a sort of way like they're very direct but that works for people and you know the characters get a lot of interactions at this point you know we've already started to kind of like pair off everybody into their own little kind of subunits of different characters you've got you know Tyrese and Ludacris are kind of consistently in their own little you know, comedy relief pair. Everybody's got their thing. You get Dwayne Johnson comes into the franchise with this one. This is the place where it's like, okay, you know, the the rock seems like he really adds something. And yeah, I mean, it's just like, this is kind of the movie to beat. Well, by the way, I think one of the one of the funniest things in this franchise is everybody has, like you mentioned, Russ, the role in the franchise. You have Ludacris and Tyrese being the comic relief. Tyrese's character changes a lot from the second movie to this one because now he's kind of like, uh, you know, it's a comedic role. But out of all of the skill sets that everyone in the crew and the family has, Gal Gadot's character, her skill set explicitly shown in this movie is wearing bikinis. There's an entire plot point <laughs> in this movie that revolves around like her special skill set is, hold on, I can solve this problem. I'm going to put on a bikini and resolve this situation. It works perfectly in the movie. Um, I say this, of course, Gal Gadot is an actress that has a whole lot more to offer, as we saw later on in her career. Here, you're sort of seeing also 
the wall of where these ensemble cast movies can go. Gal Gadot isn't given enough to work with here other than wearing a bikini. She ends up leaving the franchise after, I think, the next installment to go helm the DC Universe Wonder Woman series on her own. You start having to be in that situation that you see a lot of the X-Men movies from 20th Century Fox have to contend with. You have to split the screen time across all the stars. So the characters stop becoming characters you develop, and like we saw with the Gal Gadot bikini scene, they just end up being punchlines. They end up having two, three lines and a little bit of dialogue, a little bit of funny action comedy, and then they're gone. That's when I think the series starts deteriorating a little bit for me. It's less so the weird, wacky stunts that you mentioned, Russ, right? I think we can all appreciate a climactic scene with a Dodge Charger, like, towing a bank vault. That's fine. And so here's the thing. I think The Rock works best as an ensemble player. I think The Rock is best used as a supporting character. And that is where, like, he works really well in that respect in this movie. And for a couple of movies here... The Rock is used in precisely the right way. And I think that it's actually this movie and the next one that really cement The Rock as like kind of a movie star in a way that he wasn't prior to this. You know, certainly Journey to the Mysterious Island didn't do that in 2012. Uh, G.I. Joe Retaliation didn't do it in 2013. You know, it's like he occasionally does these movies and they really buff up the notion of him as a star because he works very, very well in this circumstance. I don't think he works as well when he's leading the movie and he certainly doesn't work as well when he's developing the movie because he's a very cautious personality. He's a very, like he's very conscious of what his image should be on screen. But if it seems like here that is okay and that works and it works in as part of this, like ensemble, you know, cast. And so that that is an additional layer to the Fast and Furious movies overall is the way that they build and and buff the the notion of the rock as a movie star. I think it might have launched his career to a next level as you mentioned. I'm not exactly sure he works perfectly well within this franchise. By that, I mean, he's introduced as a character as this jacked up Javert, right? He's going to follow the Jean Valjean of Vin Diesel all over the world to get him in the name of law and order and justice until he changes his mind. Like, it's just a character that decides, ah, I'm, I'm kind of done with that aspect. I'm just gonna wear these Under Armour shirts, have my ridiculous goatee, and like not lose fights. This is an actor, and this is just a criticism I have of The Rock in general. This is a leading man who has never shown any sort of vulnerability, whether it be emotional or even physical in any of his performances. When you watch The Rock on screen, there is no doubt of who you're watching. You're watching a star, you're never watching the character. That doesn't work for me when he's leading a movie, and I think that's why, how you mentioned, that's why he works best in small doses. My guilty pleasure, and I tend to disagree a little bit with that guilty pleasure, it's no pain and no gain. Oh, uh, pain, pain and, and gain. gain is great. Yes, pain yes. and gain. Oh yeah, pain no, and gain is the Michael exception. Bay. Yes, that pain is the gain, exception. You know, yes. it's a Michael. It's a Michael Bay movie. But the thing is, he never did another. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. He never did another role like that. He never did another role where he looks like a jerk. He never did another role where he is like where there's anything morally kind of 
questionable about him, even when he's Black Adam, a character who by definition is morally questionable, he sort of warped that character into something that is just boring, you know, for lack of a more nuanced word. So Pain and Gain, no, I'm not going to argue with you at all. I think Pain and Gain is great, but it is absolutely an outlier for him. You know, there's virtually nothing else in his film career that looks like that. I wish there was. I would love to see it because I think he could do it and I think he'd be good at it. The close out of our conversation here with Fast Five. Another big aspect of the movie is its Brazilian setting. You go from Tokyo in the third one to the Dominican Republic in the fourth. In the fifth one, shot on location in Brazil at a time when Brazil is kind of an exciting place to be. It's part of that like brick economic revolution where there seems to be all these rich people and all this money coming out of Brazil. The 2010 World Cup takes place in the country. The 2012 Olympics take place in this country. This movie is released right in the middle of the two in 2011. Brazil just seems to be the center of an exciting place to be. And part of that's also reflected in the soundtrack. Danza Cuduro becomes a massive, massive pop hit in Latin America. It's still the best song out of all the franchises. Uh, soundtrack songs that are here. I still like it. It's still on my playlist. But it ends up hitting a culture in a way that's bigger than the car culture, bigger than the heist movie culture. It ends up being a talking point where if you listen to music, you've heard about this movie. If you're interested in Brazil, if you're watching the World Cup, you hear about this movie. It's, it, I think it gets the setting down right. In the other kind of like weird trivial elements uh, of this movie, one of the things that I know bothers a lot of my friends from Brazil is that it's set in Brazil, it's shot in Brazil. Like half of the extras in this movie can't speak a lick of Portuguese. They're clearly Spanish speakers not doing a very good job. But there's one exception. Jordana Brewster has one line in Portuguese and it is perfect Brazilian Portuguese. So much so, so perfect that I could have sworn she was dubbed. So I looked it up. Jordana Brewster's mom is from Brazil. Dude, why don't you have her speak in Portuguese through the entire film? It is the, like, the best Portuguese speaker. It's a very underutilized Jordana Brewster. I think this speaks to her presence in the series as a whole. There's a lot of potential in her character that I think is underexplored, underutilized. And whenever she's given little moments in this series, she always hits them out of the park. Jordana Brewster is one, one of those characters that you always wish gets more screen time in these movies. That changes a little bit in Fast 9, I think. Her, her role in F9 is a little bit more pronounced. I hope it changes in, in, in the future entries in this franchise. Uh, but let's move forward here to Fast and Furious 6. Because after the massive hit here in Fast Five, coming out in 2011, we mentioned that 66% market share in the overseas box office. The first time one of these movies makes more than half a billion dollars worldwide, the stage is set for this movie to hit it out of the park internationally at the box office with the release of Fast and Furious 6 on May 24th of 2013. But at the same time, for me personally, it felt like the franchise had a mini trilogy with the Fast and the Furious, Fast and Furious, and Fast Five, where there is a clear spirit to the movies of there being street racing and the core characters and maybe a villain or two. You have fun with it, but there's a trilogy that ends with Fast Five. Once you get into Fast and Furious 6, you get into supervillain territory. This started as a movie with Honda Civics sticking up semi-trucks with DVD players, 
by the time you get to Fast and Furious 6, you've got like spec cars and like airplanes that are like fighting each other. It's a very different franchise, which is fine. It's just different. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just different. What definitely happens is audiences like that better. So my opinion doesn't really count here because <laughs> audiences eat this movie up. Romeo, this movie opens up domestically to a $97 million weekend, a record for the franchise uh, for this point in time. And the overseas market share here, can you walk us through these box office numbers? Because this completely, completely takes off. Uh, yeah, like you said, doing more than half a billion uh, overseas, which is a 70% market share, which is uh, absolutely crazy. Ends up, uh, they run uh, around 800 million, which is $789 million box office, with a great audience score uh, from Rotten Tomatoes with 84%. So we are approaching the billion mark bit by bit here. Bit by bit. And uh, the change in tone, it does, I think, bring a different element to these movies. Uh, so we have Michelle Rodriguez's character killed off, supposedly, in this movie. We have, uh, for the moment, uh, Gal Gadot's character killed off as well in the middle of this movie. Spoilers, whatever, you guys will live. It's, it's, come on, Fast and the Furious, don't start. But, you know, sorry for ruining this one it's a 10-year-old movie. Yeah. If, you ha if, if it's taken you 10 years to see Fast and Furious 6, that's the statute of limitations at this point. Um, yeah, all these things happen. And then also this is the movie where they're like, you know what, maybe, okay, we figured out how to have Tokyo Drift actually be in the continuity. So this is the movie where they're like, oh, here's what happened. Here's why Han died at the end of Tokyo Drift and why he came back in the fourth movie, it's because Tokyo Drift hadn't taken place yet. You know, this movie, the surprise, you know, end credits thing here is Jason Statham's character showing up as the guy who killed Han, immediately setting up Jason Statham as like the huge villain for this, for this series, because Han is such a fan favorite character that, you know, as soon as you've got somebody who's like, okay, no, he's really, now he's dead. And this is why he's dead is this guy and people are just poised to hate the Jason Statham character. Like we're back in wrestling here almost where it's like, okay, you've got a heel character. You've got somebody that people just want to really enjoy hating and you know, they make it work for a minute and then they, they basically blow it in the eighth movie, but we'll, we'll get there in a minute. The franchise is just in a completely different universe. It's not the formula that you had in the first five movies of let's stick up a truck or let's do a job and, and retire. No, at this point, you're saving the world from, I don't know, a laser beam, a virus, both. Tech stuff. Sure, why not? Who knows? AI, I don't even know. Yeah. who cares? Who cares? It doesn't matter, <laughs> but the set pieces work here. Uh, you still bring in new talent. Uh, Gina Carano followed up her turn in Steven Soderbergh's Haywire, a movie that I absolutely love. It's one of my favorite action movies, I think, in the last 30 years. Haywire's good. Damn yep. good, damn good. She follows that up, I think, with a really good action role in this one. It uses Gina Carano as part of an ensemble really well. She doesn't show up in any of the other movies. They'll do that. Sometimes they'll bring in a martial artist or a former MMA fighter to do a couple of action sequences. But you see that transition from just car sequences and car stunts to being action movies, to having 
hand-to-hand combat and fight choreography be a big part of these movies. I think the fight choreography in the sixth one works rather well. It works well whenever you have actors that can pull it off. Not everyone in this ensemble cast can. I'm not sure Paul Walker can very well. I'm not a huge fan of the way The Rock does fight sequences, mostly because it seems like The Rock can't get hurt in any fight sequence. If there's no stakes, there's no action. I'm sorry. But anyway, Gina Carano's quite good. What did you guys take away from this movie? They start to blur together at this point. I have to be honest. I was putting together my child's crib as I was watching this. So I'm not sure. And Gal Gadot wasn't in it for the whole thing. So clearly I'm not paying as close attention once she dies. So help me out here. Regarding the story, I don't have much to say, but it is really the movie that's sticking to a period of my life. That was the very first year I started working in the industry and I was working for Universal Pictures in France at the time. So when we released that year, Fast and Furious 6, remember we did almost 3 million admission in France. It was crazy. We also released Despicable Me at the time, but I remember it was a crazy year. Frozen was released, Iron Man 3 also. So... Just to, yeah, to highlight the fact that this movie uh, sticks to a period of my life that is um, that I cherish a lot. So I, I met my best friend that year. Yeah. Globally, this movie was the number six movie of 2013. It was extremely important film for Universal as this franchise ends up being our marquee franchise for the studio that at this point, as you mentioned, Romeo, you had just started working in. And I think that's the best lead-in to basically set up, I think, the big part of this this conversation is the release of Furious 7. Or actually, let's take it back a little bit. The production of Furious 7. Because this is a franchise that by this point works thanks to its ensemble cast. Now, you can add certain cast members. You can put in The Rock there. You can put in Statham, you know, Gal Gadot, a martial artist. But at the end of the day, it's a movie that works thanks to its ensemble. The unfortunate death of Paul Walker in the middle of production in 2013 of Furious 7 really changes the direction of not only how these movies are made, but how audiences respond to these movies. Romeo, you're at Universal working when this happens, what was the reaction when you guys heard this news? Well, difficult to, to explain, but, you know, I was a young adult uh, was starting my career in a big city uh, as, uh, as Paris. So when you're a young adult, you're not very trained to face death, and especially death that is not inside your, your close circle. And so I, I was surprised of my reaction being, oh, God, everything stops. We don't know what to do now because we were in the middle of uh, preparing the marketing strategy and all. It's truly also a family outside of the movies. It's, tr- it's a family for Universal Pictures, and I really got that feeling at the time. I was surprised and I was, uh, I felt sadness, definitely. And I was surprised to feel that at, at the time as a, as a young adult again. So, so yeah, it's truly a family also outside of only the, the, the movies, outside of the character. It's, it's a family for Universal. It's a family for, for the audience also, yeah. I think that the biggest thing is that this should have been the end. You know, there, there's a, a relatively, like, given the very unfortunate circumstances, they pull off an emotional ending for this movie. You know, the credits roll on this. Walker and Vin Diesel have driven off literally into a sunset. And it's just like, okay, that's it. That epilogue that you mentioned is extremely touching in a series that's not really known for its emotional depth. It has that. You achieve that. And to get there after having all of these stunts, all these adventures is extremely hard. And you realize that if there's another sequel, you're going to lose that. You're not, you're, you're never going to be able to get back to that height. You know, and the ugly irony is that Paul Walker's death becomes 
the thing that drives people to see this movie. You know, they're like, obviously people were seeing these movies. They're huge. We've talked about that over and over. They're huge. But that curiosity factor of how do they make the movie work when one of the stars died in the middle of the film becomes the thing that gets audiences to see it in, you know, volume, which of course becomes the thing that makes a further sequel inevitable. You go, no, you can't that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's the, becomes a victim of its own success, right? It's a movie that ends in the perfect note that people go and rewatch because it ends in a perfect note. Then basically guaranteeing that the studio is going to come up with another one. Let's go over those numbers real fast here. This movie, Furious 7, releasing on April 1st, 2015. A domestic opening weekend of 147 million. That's a franchise high. Uh, franchise high for domestic total, 353 million. But that is only 23% of the global market share. A massive $1.16 billion in overseas box office for a global total of $1.5 billion. It became the number six movie globally of all time upon release. By this point, it's number 11. All in all, in 2015, by the end of the year, it's the number five movie of the year domestically and the number three movie of the year globally. In a very competitive 2015 box office, this performs perfectly well. Critics respond to it. Audiences like it. I'll tell you this, though, as we go into the movie itself, this, for me, is the worst one in the franchise. The epilogue is perfect. It is the absolute best part of this movie. I don't like a single second that precedes that epilogue for Paul Walker. Lynn is out as director. You have James Swan, primarily known as a horror movie director, coming in to direct There is a massive tonal shift to begin the movie with Jason Statham making a sort of action comedy cold open for this movie. The fight sequences have that Marvel Cinematic Universe sped up look where it's not people punching people. It's people at a like increased fast forwarded pace play fighting. You have Kurt Russell show up as an extra from the Men in Black series called Mr. Nobody who's this like covert agent that uh, that is a super secret agent. I don't know, man. You have cars parachuting down. I guess that's fine. Ronda Rousey is there. I didn't think she was interesting in this movie. She definitely wasn't interesting in The Expendables 3, her other big attempt to be an action star. Tony Jaa, the martial artist, is in this one from the Ong Bak movies. He's great. Actually, I'll, I'll repeal what I said earlier. Tony Jaa is great. And then the epilogue is great. That's it for me, man. That's it for me. Uh, this is when, Russ, you, you brought up when The Rock has that joke on SNL calling himself Franchise Viagra. And that's really what ends up happening in this movie. We're fully in that thing of like murky, unmemorable technological MacGuffins as the thing that, that drives the plot. And I, and I don't think they, you know, know no like real no shade against uh Jaman Hunsu who plays kind of the villain with Jason Statham they don't really they're not really given a thing that is very memorable uh i think that's the only course correction in the next movie that kind of works res- with respect to this i think without that wonderful epilogue our memory of this movie is going to be very different it's a movie where vin diesel drives off a cliff and survives 
I mean, when, when there's going back it's to a the metaphor stakes, for the series as a whole, exactly. It's that conversation that we're having, right? If there's no stakes, if there's no sense of danger, why are you watching? If, if the bullets aren't going to do anything, if you're going to drive your car off a cliff and nothing is going to happen, why do I keep on watching? What is the sense of danger or investment that I have in this movie? That all goes out the window for me in Furious 7. But you know what? The other big thing that happens here is that it doesn't matter if this movie makes any money in the U.S., which, by the way, it does. It makes $353 million in the U.S. We're at a point where China is the Chinese market, the Chinese box office. You have Fast 6 bringing in $66 million upon release two years prior. Two years later, how much money does this make in China, Romeo? $390 million. That's insane. That's insane. I mean, more than six times the gross of the prior installment ends up being the number one global market for Furious 7, $390 million from China alone. By far, by far, the top global performer here for this title. And that pretty much tells you the direction of where this franchise is going. Audiences respond to this new iteration of what these characters are doing, of the cast, of Statham. They're all back for the next entry in the series, released only two years later on April 14th, 2017. The aptly titled The Fate of the Furious ends up opening with a $99 million opening weekend here on the domestic market. Also crosses the billion dollar worldwide overseas and a massive 82% market share outside of North America. Domestically, though, we see signs of slippage here. Romeo, this title only bringing in $226 million in North America. We can start feeling a little bit of fatigue uh, starting from uh, the fate of the Furious back in 2017. Listen, Universal's not going to get too worried with back-to-back billion-dollar movies in this franchise, but we start seeing some trouble brewing on the set of this movie. Russ... Paul Walker was a big part of these movies in production. It looks like the cast rallied around his memory to make sure Furious 7 was the best movie it could possibly be. I'm not sure the movie was that good, but the epilogue was. F8, however, no balancing factor in those dressing rooms, in those trailers. What happened here? I mean, this is where Vin Diesel becomes the decision maker for these movies, right? This is where if Vin Diesel doesn't want it to happen, it's not going to happen. Diesel and Dwayne Johnson start to kind of have a feud. (laughs) This is the movie where they start to lose some of the hardcore fans in general. Just the that backstage stuff, which just which really goes counter to like everything that the movies are pushing. The whole idea of like, oh, it's family and blah blah blah. Whatever unity they manage to project through the release of the seventh movie really breaks down here and it starts to just feel like kind of Vin Diesel domineering things, which is less interesting. You've also got the Jason Statham character who whose character killed Han, one of the fan favorites. And now Jason Statham, that character, Deckard Shaw, is like, you know, accepted into the family and the whole thing. And I have a <laughs> I have friends who are like I'm not going to see any more of these movies. You know, he killed Han, but now he's there hanging out with him and drinking Coronas with him. And it's cool. It's like, no, that's not. They've fostered this like telenovela soap opera aspect, which breeds a certain sort of fandom. And now that fandom is like, no, we don't accept these things that you're doing to the degree that they kind of 
retconned a bunch of that stuff with F9 where they're like, oh no, Han's not dead after all. I think the one good move here is to bring in Charlize Theron as Cypher. You know, she's, the plot here is completely labyrinth and to the point of being impenetrable. I couldn't even tell you what the plot of it is, but at least you've got Charlize. It doesn't doesn't matter. matter. It's like, you've got Charlize and She's Charlize Theron. She's great. And so, okay, fine. Whatever she wants to do, let's go. There's a sequence with Jason Statham rescuing a baby from an airplane, which is absurd, but kind of entertaining, like the way it's staged and put together. Well, there's set pieces from movies that could have been in any other franchise. And I think that's where the franchise of the Fast and the Furious series starts to lose its identity. Jason Statham in a shootout in an airplane with a baby is a great sequence to watch on YouTube, but you can put that in any Jason Statham movie, period. It doesn't have to be in a Fast and Furious movie. It actually makes less sense to have it in a Fast and Furious movie. There is a wonderful prison break scene between The Rock and Jason Statham, which works really well in terms of action choreography, combat choreography. I love watching it on YouTube. It doesn't really make sense to watch it in this movie as a whole. It's kind of awkwardly there just as a set piece to have a set piece. It has nothing to do with the characters or where the movie's going or the car culture or the stunts. So you get just this feeling of a franchise that is existing out of set pieces that are really, really cool that you can do rather than set pieces that work for the benefit of the character and the films themselves. That's where you get to in F8, where at least in Furious 7, as much as I hate Furious 7, it's leading to an emotional payoff at the end that delivers, right? There's, there's an emotional payoff and engagement with the characters in Furious 7 that is completely absent in F8. Yeah. Well, and I would argue that, that not only is it absent, it's actually a negative emotional impact given, again, where they take you know that Deckard Shaw character. What they basically are asking fans to accept, and a lot of people were like, mm, no, not so much. And that was F. Gary Gray coming out of Straight Outta Compton, directing the eighth installment in the Fast and the Furious franchise. I think a good job. I think an improvement, all in all, over the way James Wan approached the series. After The Fate of the Furious, you have a spinoff, called Fast and Furious Hobbs and Shaw, released on August 7th of 2019. Guys, by this point, the divorce between The Rock and Vin Diesel is finalized. The Rock basically says he's going to drop out of the ensemble cast of the upcoming Fast and Furious movies. We'll see how much of that is going to be the case moving forward. He's given his own spinoff here with Jason Statham, an action comedy Buddy Actioner opens in late summer 2019 to 60 million. Isn't part of the main franchise, so we have to look at the box office under that lens. How does this perform all in all, Romeo? It's, should I say, the, the confirmation of the of the decrease of the franchise bit by bit. Uh, we had the peak with Furious 7, and Hobbs and Show did $761 million globally. Uh, like you said, open uh, domestically $60 million and uh, ends up is run around $174 million domestically. So more than half a billion uh, international, so still a, a big uh, a big share. Good movie regarding the audience score. Actually, the best one regarding the audience score, 88%. I know restaurant agree. So yeah, half, uh, half the box office, Roberto for you, seven. So $761 million globally. 
Still a good news, but not a billion dollar, not a billion dollar movie. And it's a little unfair to have that expectation since you don't have the cast. It's not the same storyline. For a spinoff to still do over half a billion overseas is massive. This movie ends up being the number 11 global earner of 2019. So just outside of the top 10, I have no idea why this movie wasn't 90 minutes long. I like David Leitch as a director. Atomic Blonde is one of my favorite action movies the last 20 years. Just make it 90 minutes, man. There's no reason for this to be over two hours long. There's a set piece set in Samoa that makes no sense. A whole epilogue there with a Rock's fictional family that just seems like an ego trip. Come on, give me 90 minutes of fighting. That's all I need. That really does feel like the place, like this feels like the movie where The Rock is calling more shots, you know, where he's like, no, well, I'm one of the stars of this thing. So this is how I want it to go. Yeah, I think this is a, from a character, from a storytelling perspective, I think it's a boondoggle top to bottom. I don't think it's entertaining. I don't think the banter works. I don't think the characters work. There's a couple of fights that are fine, but they're kind of that weightless, like you said, you know, referring to the evolution of the fights in the main franchise overall. There's no, you know, none of it feels like it's got any weight to it. There's no stakes. There's no question that, like, how these things are going to go. The one good thing I will I will offer about this is Vanessa Kirby. Like, Vanessa yeah, Kirby yeah, good point. is good great show. presence. You know, at this point, she's, you know, obviously she's known for, you know, work on The Crown, but also, you know, she's been in Mission Impossible Fallout, where she's good. And Kirby is great. And I don't think her character is very interesting, but she, like, she brings, like, she's got chemistry with the rest of the cast in a way that none of them have with each other. So scenes with her, I'm like, okay, this is kind of entertaining, but she's the only bright spot in the movie for me. The movie just seems unnecessary as a whole. I don't know why I had to sit through it. If you just want an, an entertaining late summer buddy action comedy, make it 90 minutes, have some fun. I think some of the fights work. I like how they bring in some props. That's a big part of David Leach's approach to action choreography, action direction, bringing in props, uh, whether it's a motorcycle helmet, a toaster oven. He uses the environment in hand-to-hand combat, I think, better than others have in this series, but the film itself, it's not there. The characters aren't there. There's an action sequence at the end where The Rock is towing a helicopter with his bare hands from the back of a pickup truck. Have you ever tried standing up on the back of a pickup truck? It's not easy. You like I can't hold like a latte on the back of a pickup truck. You're not the rock. A helicopter, give me a break. But it's it's to the point that when that happens, it's so ridiculous. But it's also over two hours into the running time that I just want this to end. I want to go to the bathroom. Just do what you need to do and let's move on. Maybe for you, the F1 fans out there, like Romeo and myself. The evil villain lair in this movie is actually the McLaren headquarters in the UK. So if you're into Formula One racing, all the bad guys are basically just hiding out with Zach Brown and Lando Norris and the McLaren headquarters. It makes sense if you look at the results recently. But that's basically the only entertaining part of this movie that I can share. Let's use that to go into our home stretch here with the release of F9. Of course, the throwaway plot like it even needed one, of Hobbs and Shaw, is The Rock, Jason Statham, and Vanessa Kirby fighting robot Idris Elba to make sure that a deadly virus doesn't let loose and infect the entire world and upset the world order 
Well, guess what happens, guys? F9 released, well, slated to release in April of 2020. But wait a minute, we end up being in a global pandemic. The film is shot, the film is ready to go, the film is ready to get marketed. Ends up getting uh, canned for a little bit, just uh, for around a year or so. Ends up seeing a release in June of 2021. The first title in the shortened Universal PVOD deal to get the 30-day exclusivity, which is a big thing because we didn't know how that would play out. This is the point in the pandemic where Disney is trying to release movies day and date, like big movies, like Black Widow big movies, day and date on PVOD. Universal gives us a shorter window, 30 days exclusive to theaters that reopened during the pandemic. And after those 30 days, it goes to PVOD. Romeo, how does this perform in the pandemic era box office? But yeah, like you said, uh, I think it was it was um, was nice to put that into context because uh, it underperformed regardingly the, the regarding the the context. So when we look at the global box office, Fast and Furious Nine did uh, seven hundred and twenty six million dollar global box office with um, an international box office of again more than half a billion five hundred and fifty three million dollar. For the domestic box office, they open at seventy and they end around one hundred and seventy three, which is uh, quite similar compared to Hobbs and Show, actually pretty close and also regarding the global box office pretty close also and if you look at that context we can't just look at those numbers by themselves we have to see how this movie performs against other movies that are released during this time it ends up being the number five movie released in 2021 domestically and globally so yes a 726 million dollar global haul isn't what the prior entries in the main franchise were performing. But overseas, it still crosses half a billion dollars, and it's still in the top five when we talk about the global and domestic earners. It's performing where these type of movies perform in the marketplace, depending on where the marketplace is. And I think that frames the conversation as we enter Fast X, but I think we all agree here. At this point, there are clear signs of franchise fatigue and I think a lot of that comes from this movie. F9 is the worst one in the franchise. Justin Lin is back, and come on, man, what happened? The characters are retired and living quiet lives, but then they're pulled back into a global espionage plot multiple times at this point. It feels like we're retreading. You know, here we were introduced to the brother that Dom never really told anyone he had, played as an adult by a very angry John Cena and a guy who I like as a presence in movies that aren't this one. You know, Cypher is back, the Charlie Theron character. Han returns. Turns out uh, his death was faked. It's a total telenovela at this point. The running time is just totally bloated. Well, well over two hours when it really shouldn't be. It really, really doesn't need to be. You can still have fun with these sort of movies. Do they have to bring in all these elements? But at the same time, the cast is getting so big. And this is also saying there's no The Rock here and there's no Paul Walker here, right? So it's not like you have to balance those characters and screen time, but it feels like that problem that I brought up earlier that the 20th Century Fox X-Men movies have, Halle Berry needs to have screen time. So you need to bring and work her into the story somehow, even if it makes no sense. Jennifer Lawrence needs to have screen time. Patrick Stewart, at a certain point, you're just tired. Just tell me a story. I know you're just doing lip service to get these guys involved. I don't care. And I don't care enough that when you bring in flying cars, it's not that fun or exciting. 
You know, there there are fine cars here, by the way. This series jumps the shark at some point, and uh, everybody's got their own opinion as to to where. But I think we're definitely on the other side of the shark when it comes to F9. You know, the thing is, there was, there was such a thing for years where it's like, they're totally going to go to space. And then when they do go to space or the upper atmosphere, as I uh, push my glasses up and, and well actually earlier <laughs> in this episode, it's really underwhelming. And it feels like they don't even have the excuse of, of producing this movie during the pandemic. It was filmed and ready to go. Yeah, this one just feels like it feels half baked in every respect. I mean, it's it's the Moonraker moment for the franchise, where I think Moonraker would be a great fun film if it actually went all in on going into space with James Bond, but it doesn't. It has to hedge its bets a little bit. I think F9, if it wants to put its characters in outer space and have some sort of moon base, sure, just go all in on it, man. Don't give me a halfway there. Just commit to it. Have fun with the concept. We'll go with you. It doesn't. It wants to hedge its bets to the point where you don't need to set any of that outer space stuff in outer space. Just have them do it in a warehouse. Who cares? But if you do go there, you have to give me more, especially in a movie well over a two-hour running time. It feels bloated. The character motivations change. There's a revision to the character philosophies and their motivations to a point that it feels after spending so long with these characters, it feels like you're pushing me as a moviegoer and as a fan. I think that, if anything, dictates our forecasting for Fast X coming out this weekend. We know this franchise is a global earner. We know that half a billion dollars plus overseas is the benchmark to hit. I think there's a lot of work that Fast X needs to do to win fans back to get the people that go see it more than once in theaters. That's going to be the challenge for Fast X this weekend. Russ, Romeo, thank you so much for joining us in another marathon session going over the entire franchise history of a movie. Always great to get your insights. And uh, we will see you guys coming up real soon when we do the exact same thing for half the number of movies when we go over the Transformers franchise. Another series that I haven't seen a single one of these movies and that I will watch all of them in their entirety by the time we record next episode. So thanks again for joining us. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes out every Thursday. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and like. It helps us do what we do every week. And we'll see you again next week. 